Uh, This morning, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 18, verse 12 through 20. And this is uh, one of those, like I said last week, one of those really uh, important chapters that everybody knows the reference to because of the content of what's in the chapters. But I will say this, that uh, this is a very controversial passage. It's a challenging passage. It's one that when you think about the application of it, a lot of people would just like to ignore what Jesus says here. And I want to just remind us that as Jesus is teaching, he actually says two things about the church before there is a church. Now, we know that the church starts on Acts chapter 2 after Jesus has ascended um, into heaven, and then they pray, and the church is born in Acts chapter 2. And so at this point, there isn't a church. And the first thing that Jesus says about the church is in chapter 16, and he just says, I will build my church. So Jesus is talking about the coming church, and he says, I will build it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I just have to tell you, I love that, that the pressure to build the church and to make the church what it is does not rest on our shoulders, doesn't rest on my shoulders. This is something that Jesus does. And I love the fact that he gives really clear instructions as to what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. So it's just one of those things where we say, Jesus, you're powerful. This is your church. You're the one who's going to build it. Okay, tell me what's my part to play. And then the second thing that Jesus, the second time Jesus refers to the church is here in Matthew chapter 18. And he's going to talk about spiritual rescue. When when somebody is struggling in sin, when somebody's in trouble, what is the responsibility of the church to love that person, to come alongside, to help them, to rescue them? And that's what Jesus is going to talk about. You know, uh, if the church belongs to Jesus, we should do things his way. Now, I remember my dad talking about rescuing people. My dad had a ton of jobs. He was a pilot. He was a surveyor. He worked for the Forest Service. Like, he did so many different things. At one point, he, he used to be a diver, and he pulled dead bodies out of Lake Mead. And, I mean, this, like, my dad, when he goes through the list of things that he, that he did in his life, he did so many things. But one of the jobs that he had at some point was that he was a lifeguard. And he used to say, he used to tell me, um, hey, Roger, you know, when you're, when you're trying to save people who are drowning, it's, it's kind of this crazy thing. He's like, people will do things that are so counterproductive, and you'll swim out to grab somebody and try to save them, and they will drown you, and they won't follow any of your instructions. He's like, I've had people that are so scared that they're trying to climb up on me and stand on my head and get their body totally out of the water. He's like, man, so... So when you're saving somebody, throw them something that they can grab a hold of because people just freak out when they're in that desperate situation. And I think about, you know, our job to rescue people spiritually. A lot of times when people are in trouble, they don't think clearly, they don't function the way they should function. And the the desire and the attempt to help somebody who's struggling can at times be a very negative experience because people don't function correctly. On the whole lifeguard illustration, I remember a time I took a bunch of kids in youth group to the beach, and uh, we were out in San Diego, and, and uh, I, there was kind of like this riptide that kind of pulled me out just a little too far, and I couldn't quite stand up. And so I'm, I'm trying to swim in, and as the swells are coming, I'm, I'm trying to swim along with the swells to just get a little closer, and my feet just can't quite touch. 
And uh, how embarrassing, you know, I'm the one in charge of the youth group. There's kids in youth group everywhere all around. And, I, and I'm starting to realize, man, I, I think I'm in trouble. And uh, right now I can still swim and I can still keep myself up, but I'm not making any progress getting closer in. And so it was kind of, it, it was not a crazy situation yet, but it was heading that direction. And to my amazement, there was some lifeguard somewhere on the beach that recognized the situation. I don't know if he has binoculars and he could see the look on my face and that I was starting to, you know, he saw what was going on. And so this lifeguard, he just jumps in, he swims out to me and, uh, and he's got fins and he had this like little, little floaty device. And so he tosses it to me. He goes, hey, you want some help? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so he tosses me this little device and then it was just like the guy was like a motor, you know, almost like I would be pulled up on the water and, and start skiing. I mean, just how the power that this, this guy could swim with. I'm like, man, they got amazing lifeguards. But he pulled me in about 20 feet. And so I was still out in the water and all that stuff. He just pulled me in a little ways. He's like, all right, you're good. I get the thing back. He goes, and I never even got out of the water. Like there was no ambulance. There was no, you know, I'm just thinking, man, I'm going to get to the beach. All the kids, what's wrong? The lifeguard saved Roger, you know. He just grabbed me and just pulled me in a little ways. Nobody knew what happened, but I went from being in a place where I was potentially in serious trouble to a place where I was okay. And that's a lot of times the way God intends for the body of Christ. We don't wait until people's lives are destroyed. When we see a person in trouble, when we see a person heading the wrong direction, we lovingly, graciously, caringly step in before the disaster when we can. So uh, as you think about the whole issue of stumbling into sin and wandering away, one of the things that makes it so difficult is even though we're always responsible for our choices, a lot of times there is satanic deception that is involved in us wandering away. And so we actually, as believers, when, when we hear lies, when we believe things that aren't true, when we start making choices that are different than what God tells us to do, we end up in disaster, we end up in difficulty, and in a sense, if you look back and think about it, a lot of times we put ourselves there. And so we're responsible, even though there's this whole thing of, of uh, deception and satanic influence and all kinds of things, and, and the fact that we're willing participants in wandering away from God can make it almost impossible to come back. It can make it almost impossible to return. You want to run and hide because you feel somewhat responsible for where you are, and truthfully, you are. And Satan uses that. He uses the, the embarrassment, the humiliation. He uses all of those things. The, the looking back and just going, man, I knew better. I shouldn't have done this. And, and we get ourselves in trouble, and Satan uses that to keep people separated from God, to keep people away. And, and we, can be tr we can feel trapped when we think there's no way out. So here's the, here's the issue as we think about this passage that is so important, is that we need to tr train people to rescue before there's the need to rescue. Like lifeguards with good training are much more valuable. It's not like, okay, there's a guy drowning out there. Can somebody come help me figure out how to save people? We also need to teach people how to be rescued, how to think about being in spiritual trouble and how to accept help 
and, and how to have people step into our life and how we should respond and how God thinks about the things that are going after us, uh, how to think about the people that are coming after us. And so we need that. And uh, as I think about this, we have a great illustration kind of of some of these principles in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And I'll just tell you the story. You don't have to turn there. But we've referred to this many times. One of these days, I'm going to quit referring to it, and I'm actually just going to preach on the story. But you guys can read this story. But it's a story of uh, David and Bathsheba. And as you look at that story and you think about it from the perspective of Nathan, the person that God sends to rescue David who's trapped. And, and this is one of the things that we see in David's life. He, he obviously ends up in this incredibly disastrous situation, but he didn't just get there one day. He gradually wandered into it. And as we read the story, there were a bunch of little compromises in his life that led him to the place of disaster. Kings are supposed to go out to war, and David's sitting home in his castle sending everybody else. So he was the wrong place at the wrong time. He disregarded his responsibilities as king. And even though that wasn't this terrible sin, that laid the foundation for him to peek over his wall at one of his military men's wives. And so these people that lived around the king, um, uh, Uriah was actually uh, one of his bodyguards that loved him, that cared about him, that would have given his life to save David's life. And, and while Uriah is out fighting a war, which is where David should have been, David's sitting in his house looking over the fence at, his, at Uriah's wife who's taking a bath. And David looks at her and says, hey, who is that? Oh, that's, that's the wife of Uriah the Hittite who's out fighting, one of your personal bodyguards, one of the guys who would sacrifice his life to save you. And David says, oh, okay, yeah, bring her to me. So David sleeps with her, and then she gets pregnant, and David's in this terrible situation. He's committed this terrible sin, and uh, now she's pregnant, and her husband was out of town. So there's going to kind of be a problem in a few months. And so David just feels like, okay, this is a disaster. Now imagine you're in that situation and, and you know, admitting, hey, I, you know, I, I stayed home when I should have gone to war. That's not this terrible nightmare. But how do you as the king own up to and face the fact that you slept with a person's wife who loves you, who would give their life for you? How do you own up to that? How do you deal with that? That is like this nightmare situation. Now, here's part of it, is in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, the consequences were execution. And so David's the king, and he did something that actually the result would be the end of his life. And so he's like, okay, I am in a no-win situation. I've got to get myself out of this. And so he calls Uriah home, and he's like, hey, come home from battle. And, uh, so he hangs out with the king, and, and David's hoping he'll go home and sleep with his wife. He hasn't been home for a while. Hopefully he'll go home and relax. And Uriah's just like, man, God's army is out in the field. The Ark of the Covenant, God's very throne, is out in the field. I am not going to go home and enjoy the comforts of my life while Israel's out suffering. You see Uriah's integrity when David's willing to sit home, and Uriah's saying, no, I'm going to I need to honor the Israelite army, and I need to honor the Lord. And so David's like, okay, that didn't work. So he invites him over again that night. He's like, hey, Uriah, come on over. 
And uh, he gets him drunk. So he just is like having him drink. He's like, okay, the guy's drunk. <laughs> he will go home and sleep with his wife. So he gets him drunk, and he doesn't go home, and he doesn't sleep with his wife. And so David comes up with plan B, and that is I'm going to write a little note. I'm going to give it to his commander, and I'm going to say send him out into the worst part of the battle. And then when he's out there, pull away from him. Just take everybody else out. Leave him there by himself so he's killed by the enemy. And uh, that's actually what happens. And then a year goes by, and David is trapped. He can't get out of this. There's no way to admit to this. How do you do this? And the Bible tells us in Psalm 51 and in Psalm 32, when you look at those, that, that David is wasting away. He feels such intense guilt. He, he's, he's having a hard time functioning. His, his conscience is just destroying him. God's hand is heavy on him. And, uh, but he's trapped. What's he going to do? There's no way out. And that is what Satan does to people who dis disregard God. They ignore what God says. They end up in trouble, and they feel like there's no way out. And one of the things that we see in this story is that there is a way out because God goes to Nathan, and he tells Nathan, go talk to King David. Now, you're Nathan. Okay, he... he <laughs> He had an affair, and he murdered his bodyguard. And you're going to tell me to go confront the king. Like, like, what's going through Nathan's mind? There are plenty of prophets that spoke on God's behalf, went to give a warning to a sinning king, and they got executed. Um, and the Bible doesn't tell us what was going on in Nathan's head, but he must have been wondering. So he shows up. He tells David this story, which is just, it communicates... Um, just how powerful deception can be. It communicates how incredibly hypocritical we can be. I think about the people whose lives are a disaster from a spiritual perspective, but they are so judgmental and they are so hard on other people. And so Nathan goes and tells a story about a man who has a sheep, and this is the interesting thing because sheep... Um, it says this man has a sheep and he brings it into his house. And, and the play on words in this Hebrew thing, they, they rhyme with Bathsheba's name as Nathan's telling this story. And he just says this guy has a sheep. It's like his pet. He loves it. He takes care of it. He only has one. And then this really rich guy with tons of sheep um, has a guest coming into town. And he goes and he takes, he takes that person's sheep and he slaughters it and feeds it to his guest. And... And David, it's interesting, David responds, he's indignant. He's so upset. He's so angry that this rich man would take advantage of somebody like that. And so he, uh, he, he, he actually responds with precision according to God's word. Like he says, he deserves to die. And then he actually pronounces the exact punishment that the law requires for a person who steals a sheep. And so here's David. He knows God's word. He's pronouncing, pronouncing judgment. He's so disgusted at the sin of someone else while we know what he did. He didn't steal somebody's sheep. And then Nathan looks him in the eye and he just says, David, you are the man. And then he goes through and he pronounces judgment, 
on, on David and just says, you're going to suffer. There's going to be all kinds of difficulty in your life because of this. And, and David, in that moment, it's like this freedom. All of a sudden, he can't hide it. Everybody knows it comes out this unimaginable situation that he is trapped in. The moment that Nathan shows up, sticks his finger in his face and says, David, it's you. That is the freedom that David needs to just confess. And the first thing that Nathan says is, um, you're forgiven and you won't die. Like people don't understand, like when he says, you're forgiven, you're not going to die. God says, okay, we're not going to execute you for what you did, which was what was supposed to happen. So you can read that whole story, but that, that story lays a foundation for us to think about ourselves and for us to think about people who struggle in sin, and that's what Jesus is going to talk about. Now, I want to just say a couple things. This is a very challenging passage, and it's challenging and it's difficult because there are a lot of religious people that are not actually Christians, Um, There's lots of religious people that wander into sin. They don't know the Lord, and so some of these things don't work out the way they would work out in a believer's life. There are churches full of religious people who are not actually Christians. And so when God says, here's how you deal with somebody who's struggling in sin, they go, oh, now that sounds terrible. That's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. There are a lot of people that are just biblically uninformed. They actually don't know what God says about how to respond to people who are struggling There's a lot of people who don't believe God. They don't trust God. They don't submit to God. They don't just go, okay, uh, what did God say? Whatever he said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. That's not how they live their life. They live their life saying, no, actually, I'm smarter than God. I know better. I'm going to do things my way. And the other thing, the other reason that there are a lot of people who just disregard these things is because there are so many people that only care about themselves. They don't actually love other people. And they sit there and they just think, man, if I do what God says, a bunch of people are going to get mad at me. I ain't doing that. And so they're just like, oh, God bless you. Have fun on your trip. There's a disaster about to happen. It's like they just watch people walk off a cliff because they don't want to make the personal sacrifice to step in and do what God says. All right. That's a long introduction. (laughs) Shall we read... uh, Shall we read Matthew chapter 18? We're going to see three important things this morning. The first one is in verse 12 through 14, and it's that God goes after people who wander, and so should we. God cares about people who are wandering. You and me, if we're believers, we should care about people who are wandering, and we should go after them. The second thing is that there is a personal and a corporate responsibility to rescue people who wander. In your personal life, there are things God wants you to do. And as a church, as a whole, there are things that God wants the church to do. That's verse 15 through 17. And ultimately, we trust God to rescue people who wander. And and that's in our interactions. You know, every time somebody repents, every time somebody does the right thing, it's never because we're so smart. It's because God is working in their heart. And when people tell you to take a hike and they just continue down a destructive path, that's not the end of the story because God can reach out and God can save and God can take care of people even when they walk away from you. 
So uh, the context of this passage, before we read it, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, and God says, don't worry about being greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Just make sure you're in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, make sure that at all costs, you don't cause another person to sin. It'd be better if you were dead than that you cause another person to sin. And aside from that, make sure there's no sin in your life. You see how there's like this intensity And before Jesus is going to talk about what we should do for other people, he says, make sure you have your act together. Make sure you are dealing with things properly in your life before you try to go help someone else. And then he's going to talk about in this passage our responsibility to help others. So here's verse 12. And Jesus is just going to tell a parable about God. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You know, the, a couple points here is we're referred to as sheep, and I just want to remind you of Psalm 23, that the Lord is our shepherd. He takes care of us. He is good to us. He guides us. And when we step away from what God tells us to do, man, we're in trouble. Following God is always the best thing. And when it talks about going astray, this is a story about Christians who wander away from God. That's what this parable represents. And to go astray is to think the way the world thinks, to think in a sinful way, or to behave in a a sinful way. And as as people are going astray in the way they think about things or the way that they actually behave in the sense of just rebelling against what God has said, we're to go and we're to rescue them. And we're to know that when that happens, people are in harm's way, and every person matters to God. There are so many people, I think, in churches, they just think, man, we got 500 people here, and there's one of them that's kind of straying. What a nightmare, man. It would be so busy to, to try to go deal with them. And, and what if we go try to help that person, and it creates this big controversy, and, and then all their family members get mad, and other people leave the church, and it's just one person. If we just look the other way and let them walk off a cliff, we lose one. If we go try to help them, think about how that will impact our week. Think about how that might impact our church family. What will people think? What will people say? And the Bible says that every single person matters. And uh, this is the other thing that I love, and it's just as we consider the attitude about going after people who are straying. It says that, that in verse 13, if he finds it, truly I say to you that he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. You know, when a person goes astray and repents, that is not a tragedy. That's something that's a cause of great celebration. There are no second-class citizens in the church. It's not like if, you, if everything in your life is perfect, oh, you're great, but if you wandered into sin, if you did some terrible things and you come back to the church, well, hey, welcome back, but, but go sit over there somewhere, or you're somehow less valuable, less important than somebody who didn't struggle. There are no second-class citizens. There is nobody who is damaged goods. Oh, because of the choices that you made, you can never come back. That is not the way that God 
views people. And that's not the way we should view people. And as we think about our heart toward going after people who have struggled or strayed, that one of the things that we need to remember is that someday the person struggling or straying might be you. And, and, and I would just go even beyond that. Think about this. The way that we treat people who wander, who struggle, who have a hard time, who, who sin, who cause difficulties in their life, the way that we treat them actually sends a message to everybody else in the church about how they're going to be treated if they wander and stray. Um, I think about that the way my kids hear me talk about people who are struggling in sin. The way my kids see me treat people who are struggling in sin sends a message to my kids as to how I'm going to think about them and how I'm going to respond to them if they wander. And so one of the things that we need to think about is we have a responsibility to do the things that God tells us to do, but we are sending a message to everybody. And are we sending a message that says, if you struggle, run back here. Come tell me. It is safe. You will be loved. You will be helped. Is that the message that we communicate with how we respond when people are struggling in sin? Because that is God's attitude toward people who struggle. He loves them. He welcomes them. He throws his arms around them. And that's the context of um, the other things that are going to be said in this passage. So um, God goes after those who wander, and so should we. And the second thing that we're going to see here is that there is both a personal and a corporate responsibility to rescue people. And here's one of the things I love is Jesus just actually lays it out. He says when somebody's struggling, somebody's having a hard time, this is what you do. And he just gives us steps. And then we just need to follow those. And um, if you're a believer, you should always just follow God's instructions. So let's read them and see what they are. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 says this. If your brother sins... Now, if you have an ESV, it says if your brother sins against you. If you're reading the New American Standard, it just says if your brother sins and it stops. Those two words of against you get copied into some manuscripts. And so maybe they should be there in Matthew. Uh, maybe they shouldn't be there in Matthew. Maybe some scribe copied them in. As you read the other passages that address this, those words aren't there. And th there are some people who take this passage and they'll misrepresent it and they'll say, no, this only has to do with a person who sins against you. It includes a person who sins against you. But it actually is addressing anybody who sins. And so it says, if, if your brother sins, this is a brother in Christ, a brother or sister, a fellow believer, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained your brother. So uh, the first thing that we need to think about in here is, is if your brother sins, we address sin that is harmful and damaging to the people involved in it. There's a lot of people that kind of misunderstand this whole issue of if your brother sins. People sometimes confront people over the most ridiculous things. Well, uh, I was at church, and, and, and me and this other guy, we waved, and this person walked in. They didn't even see us and say, hi, how selfish, how inconsiderate. They, they didn't even notice other people. They're just so self-absorbed. Selfishness is a sin. Brother, I need to talk to you about your selfishness last week at church. And it, it's amazing 
the ridiculous things that people confront other people about. And that is not what God is telling us to do. The church is not supposed to be this place that puts everybody under a microscope and is going to messing with everybody and trying to address every little tiny thing in everybody's life. But when you see somebody who has a pattern of sin and it's harmful to them, now we need to reach out and we need to help. You know, there, there are people who, um, uh, they, they think that addressing sin is so that they can get personal justice. Somebody wronged me, and they need to say they're sorry. That's not the purpose of addressing sin. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 1 Corinthians 13.7, Love bears all things, believes all things, all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We address things for the spiritual well-being of other people. It's one of the things that is such a tough thing in parenting. So my kids were never allowed to be disrespectful to me. Like they realized that being disrespectful to me brought significant and immediate consequences into their life. Uh, my, my kids, uh, my philosophy on parenting is you need to know two things if you live in my house. Number one is that I love you. And number two is you need to obey. So whatever I tell you to do, you better do it. And, and in that process, um, I recognize that, that, a kid's, that a person's attitude toward authority is an expression of their attitude toward God. And here's the difficult thing. When my kids were disrespectful to me, what was the motivation of my response? Was it in your life, if you rebel against authority, that's going to bring God's judgment, that's going to bring difficulty, that's going to bring harm into your life? So I'm going to raise you in a place where you learn that when somebody's in authority and they ask you to do something, you humbly and submissively do what you're asked? Or do I feel like, I'm your dad. How dare you talk to me like that? Because it's the same, it's the same situation, and it may even be the same response, but the question is, what's the motivation behind it? Am I parenting for my best interests, or am I parenting for their best interests? And so we address sin... And we do it for another person's well-being, never for our justice. And we go to people personally and privately. Um, I like Luke chapter 17, verse 3. This is what it says. Uh, Jesus summarizes his teaching, and he just says, Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a, a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, we forgive people. We do things for their best interests. And um, this is one of the things that it encourages us is we need to go to people directly. So if you're going to go to somebody, what are the prerequisites to going to another person? Well, the first thing is that you're dealing with yourself first. Look at Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you not be judged. You want to run around saying, you didn't smile and say hi. Do you, is that how, what you want everybody to do to you? Is that how you want to be treated? Don't judge other people in a way that you don't want to be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye. So if you've got a log in your eye, you can't see to get the speck out of someone else's. So the whole thing is you've got to deal with yourself first. Verse 5 says this, 
you hypocrite. Now notice, everybody reads this don't judge and just says mind your own business, don't talk to anybody else. But that's not what that passage says. It goes on and it says in verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, when you deal with your own sin first, it gives you perspective and you start to realize, no, I got like 50 really important things I'm working on. I don't need to go micromanage other people. Yeah, maybe that was wrong. Maybe that was something that they shouldn't have done, but I got my hands full with myself. The second thing is that when we deal with our own sin first, it makes us gentle, merciful, and wise toward other people. And we just think, man, how do I want to be treated? What would have been helpful to me when I'm struggling with this? It's so wounding. It's so embarrassing when somebody finds out about it. And, and I don't want everybody knowing about everything I did wrong. So what does that make you do? You go to people privately. You don't take their stuff and just start telling everybody else about it. You go to them privately because you just think, hey, when I'm dealing with my sin, how would I want it to be responded to? Galatians 6.1 gives this command. It just says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore. And that's the purpose. It's never punishment. It's to get people back to where they need to be. Restore him in a spirit of gentle, gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. You know the Pharisee that's like, I'm righteous, I tithe, I do all these good things. Thank the Lord that I'm not like that publican over there who's, you know, praying and asking God to forgive him. Man, what a terrible thing to have somebody like that talking to you about things in your life. Now, what if, what if the publican who's beating his chest and just saying, God, I am, I am a, be merciful to me. I am a terrible sinner. Please forgive me. And then that person comes to you and, and just loves you and says, man, hey, the things I've struggled with, this is how that's hurt me. Don't, don't go down that path. Don't be that person. What an incredible difference when a humble person who sees their own sin and weakness is willing to address things in your life. And so we go privately, and if they listen, we've won our brother and we're done. If they don't listen, we take other witnesses so that every fact can be con confirmed. Sometimes we think things happened that didn't really happen, and so we need to go and find out, did it really happen? And, and other witnesses, who are other people who have seen this? Maybe you are convinced that this other person is in sin and needs to be addressed. And so you get eight people around, and they, they get around, and they talk to you, and they're like, actually, no, um, in this one, it's you. Like, I think about that with my kids. Every time one of my kids was going to tattle on one of their siblings, I would just say, okay, stop right there. Go get your sibling and then come tell me this story. So whoever you're talking about, go get them and bring them here. And tell me in front of them. And half the time, the one tattling was the one who was actually wrong. And so sometimes we need people for that. I remember one time uh, my kid was in youth group and somebody just said the most mean thing. So she was, I think she was in junior high, and one of the, one of the high school boys just said this really nasty thing to her, and, and it was just so embarrassing. She was so upset by it. She came home, she talked to me about it, and I said, hey, he's your brother in Christ, so here's the phone. I'm calling him. Don't talk to his mom. Talk to him, and just say to him, explain, this is what happened. This is what you did. This is how I felt, and, and this is why I feel like that's wrong, and so call him up, have a conversation, and then I walked her through. 
He might deny it. He might minimize it. I'm sorry you felt that way. He might humbly repent. So these are the different options of how that might go, and here's how you should respond in each of those situations. And I just handed her a phone and said, all right, make the call. And that's one of the things that we need to practice. We need to train. We need to teach people to do things the way God says they're supposed to do it. I didn't call the mom. How dare your son talk to my kid that way? That's not what God says we're supposed to do. And so, um, so we, we do it personally, we do it privately, and if we've won them, um, that's the end of it. And if not, we take other people who love them and who can help them so that you have multiple people that are involved trying to help. And then eventually we involve the church. So there's a person walking down a sinful, destructive path, and you talk to them. And then all their close friends went and talked to them. And then you reach out to the leaders of the church and you say, hey, here's this tragic situation. It's not a gray area. This is a violation of Scripture. This person's living in a direction that's destructive. Help us. And then the leaders of the church get involved in help. And then if that doesn't work, eventually you tell everybody and you say, hey, this person's a member of our church and this is their hard-hearted, consistent pattern of sin. We all need to pray. We all need to talk to them. We all need to go after them. And so you, you tell it, you go privately, you bring friends who know, you involve the leadership of the church and the church as a whole. And then verse 17 says this, and this is a very challenging part of the passage that nobody likes to do. Or some people actually love doing this. Uh, Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, um, I've heard a lot of people look at this passage and go, yeah, a Gentile and a tax gatherer. That just means that you reach out to them, you pray for them, you care about them. Um, a Gentile and a tax collector was a person that they wouldn't talk to, that they wouldn't associate with, that they would not eat with. And Jesus is saying, you need to take a person who refuses to respond when they're confronted, and you need to put them out. And um, in my years being in a church, that actually happened um, the, I, in my first year of being a Christian. I went to a church, and they, brought some, they, they talked about a person who had gone through this whole process, and they were saying, this person can't come to the church anymore, and if you know about them, pray for them, go after them, love them, encourage them. And it was the weirdest thing I had ever experienced. And uh, it was about probably nine months later or a year later, that person showed up in church again. And they said, hey, uh, I want to just tell you guys, this is what happened. This is how God worked in my life. This is how all of your involvement, your love, your encouragement, your help, this is how that helped me. And that person was restored right back into the church. And, and in my 30 years of ministry, I've seen that happen four times. And I think of those four times, three of the times a person ended back in church, repentant, and living a faithful life. So we do that. Um, and, and one of the things is you wonder, okay, so how should you apply this? Why don't we close this morning by actually reading a time that this actually happened in the New Testament? Because it actually happened, and we get to see a record of how it was dealt with. So this is what Jesus said. Now, how was this actually applied in the church? If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, just a little background about the Corinthian church. 
the Corinthian church was not a fun church to be in. Um, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos. There was so much fighting, conflict, unspiritual behavior. They were just going after each other all the time. Paul just says, you guys are unspiritual. They just, there was so much conflict, a lack of love, a lack of care. And that's actually what I find. The churches that are unloving, prideful, judgmental, are, are churches where people just function according to their own best interests. And when it comes to what God calls people to do in the life of a person who's struggling, they disregard it just like they disregard God's command to love, to forgive, to be merciful, and to be gracious. They just disregard it all. But they pride themselves. Oh, that's so mean to do that. Uh, we're loving, we're nice, but they're actually not loving or nice. So this is 1 Corinthians 5. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So you got a guy, his wife dies, he gets remarried, and he's hanging out at church, and it's a, a dad, a wife, and a son, and they're kind of hanging out together in church. And eventually, you know, the, the, the wife kind of has a conflict with her husband. She's like, all right, he's out, but you know, the son's pretty cute. And next thing you know, uh, the son and the mother, the stepmother, they hook up and they start coming to church. And they're just like, you know, you can't say no to your heart. I love this person and they love me. And how could something that's so good be so, something that feels so good be wrong? When we love each other, God's laid this on our heart. We just, we prayed about it. This is, this God told us yes. And so they're hanging out in the church and they're living together. They're living in sexual immorality. Some guy with his stepmom. And the church is like, oh, we're gracious. We're non-judgmental. We love people here. And uh, this is what Paul goes on to say. A man has his father's wife, verse 2, and you are arrogant. You ought not rather to mourn. Are you not, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did this thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says, you put this person out. And by the way, God's hand of protection is coming off that sinful man and, and, and Satan is going to destroy him. That hedge that was built around Job, where Satan couldn't do anything to Job, well, Christians function with that. When you continue in a hard-hearted manner of sin and people have gone to you and they pleaded with you, and then the church says, okay, you're out, that hand of protection comes off and Satan goes in. And it says, to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? When you have that kind of blatant sin just going on in the church and everybody's doing things and nobody's judgmental about anything, that actually has an influence on believers in the church. How does that impact um, the reputation of the church amongst the unbelieving world? There's all kinds of reasons why this is, is harmful. Look at verse 9. 
And Paul's going to talk about his instructions that he wrote in a previous letter. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. You know, Paul's not saying avoid sinful people. Where could you go? There, there's nowhere you can go without sinful people. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, and not even to eat with such a one. For what do we have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside the, the church. Purge the evil person from among you. One of the incredible blessings, you know, Rome, uh, Matthew chapter um, 7 um, talks about people who think they're believers, but they're not. And a lot of times people who just wander off into sin, they're not believers. And this is one of the ways that the church says, you have no relationship with Christ. If you live your life in that way, we're putting you out. You are not a Christian. You are not one of us. And it's for their well-being to think about this. What? The church says I can't come? That's crazy. Now, by the way, this is not something that's supposed to be done anytime anybody sins. It's not if a person gets drunk or a person commits sexual immorality. It's a person who walks down a long road of hard-hearted sinfulness and refuses to respond. It's not people struggling with sin. A person who comes in and says, oh, man, I, I had an affair. Oh, get out. No. We throw our arms around people. We love them. We encourage them. We help them. The church is a place people should be able to run when they're in trouble and to say, I need help, and I'm blowing it, and I need accountability, and I need someone to pray for me, and I need somebody to encourage me. You know, I, I want to just tell the end of this story. Um, this is actually a man who, after all of that, repented and comes back to the church. And again, the Corinthian church, they're such knuckleheads. Paul has to write to them and say, guys, let him back in. You know, they're, they're oh, we're so loving and gracious. No, they're not. They, the guy's repenting, and they won't let him come back to church. And so he says this in, in chapter 2, verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough so that you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Welcome him back. Love him. Don't, don't hold him at arm's distance. And here's the third thing, is that ultimately we're trusting God to rescue those who wander. Uh, Matthew 18, 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's a reference to what Paul says when he says, I'm turning you over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. When the church functions in that way, in obedience to God, there are spiritual ramifications of that. And, and so that's releasing the hand of God. Again, I say, if two of you agree on anything on earth, anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Like, this is a verse that gets ripped out of context and stuck with just general prayer. Yes, prayer is about this passage. But it's just saying when the church functions obediently according to what God says, God's there. You're, you are representing God. You know, where two or three are gathered in his name. Well, can I just tell you something? Um, God's omnipresent, which when there's nobody there, God is there. If one person is there by themselves, God is with them. 
When two people are there, then God's in their midst. When there's eight people, God is always everywhere all the time. This is just saying that when you act on God's behalf, you are acting with God's authority. And, um, hey, I think to wrap this up, I don't know if this is new for, for any of you, if you have heard this or thought about this. These, these can be challenging things to apply and to understand. But I just want to challenge us with this. If we were trapped in sin, we would want to be rescued with grace, with mercy, with forgiveness, and with the firmness of Christ. We would want people to come alongside and say, no, don't walk off the cliff. And we need to think about all that that means and make sure we're doing that. We've got to make sure we're never people who go, oh, no, if I get involved in that situation, what a nightmare it would be, how hard it would be for me, how that would mess up my time, how people might get mad at me. It's not about us. It's about loving and caring for other people. And just like David, man, what a no-win situation. There was no way out of his situation. But repentance was a way out. I love Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will remember your sins no more. When, when I confess and when I repent, I remember it's not because I'm good enough and it is not because I deserve it. It's like when you're in sin or you do something you shouldn't do, you just think, man, I'm terrible. Why would God ever forgive me? And God just says, no, no, I will always forgive you. And I forgive you because of me, not because of you. And I won't remember your sins. And as the body of Christ, we need to reflect God's character. And uh, next week, man, Craig has an amazing message for us about God's forgiveness. And it's going to be incredible, and it's going to be inspiring that we be a forgiving people. Let me pray. God, thank you for giving us your word. Lord, help us never to be people that look down on others, prideful, arrogant, harsh, Lord, waiting to jump in and discipline somebody. Lord, help us to never have that kind of an attitude. Help us to be gracious and loving and encouraging and helpful to people. Help us never to be the kind of people that because we want someone to like us, that we affirm sinful, destructive choices. God, help this church to be a loving church that encourages people toward you and is there for each other, a place that's safe to run back to when we're struggling. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be that in your name. Amen.